0: once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. We are currently studying a section of Matthew's Gospel chapter 15 that runs from verse 1 through verse 20. This passage started with an accusation, as we saw last week, that was made by the scribes and Pharisees against the disciples of Jesus. We read in verse 2, where they said, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, again, as we pointed out last week, the accusation by the scribes and Pharisees against the disciples of Jesus that they were not washing their hands before they ate uh, had nothing to do with personal hygiene. Okay, It was all a matter of their ceremonial understanding of cleanliness. The whole concept of clean and unclean got its start In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, if a person touched certain things, we'll say like a dead body, uh, he was considered ceremonially unclean, which meant defiled, and couldn't approach God, couldn't have fellowship with God, couldn't worship God, until he went through the cleansing ritual prescribed in the law of Moses. However, over the centuries, the Jewish elders, which were their teachers, added other stipulations to these ritual washings that came to be known as the Traditions of the Elders. And you see, as we pointed out last week, the Jewish teachers rightly taught that when Moses went up to Sinai to get the law, God gave him the law, which was then written down and became you know, part of their holy scriptures. We know it as the Torah. But then later on, the rabbis began to teach, but that's not all he received from the Lord. Now, this is not biblical. This is something they just came up with. That later on, God gave him more revelations, which were not written down. And these were passed from generation to generation orally, and these things came came to be known as the oral traditions. Now, if you study their history, you'll discover that they got so enamored with these oral traditions that they actually began to put them on a higher plane or a higher pedestal than even the written scriptures that God had given them. One such oral tradition dealt with these ceremonial hand washings, uh, which... They claimed needed to be needed to happen before and during the meal. So before the meal and then during between every course, they had to wash their hands in a very uh, prescribed way. We talked about that last week, because if they didn't wash their hands continually in this ceremonial way, then their hands became defiled. and when they ate with defiled hands, of course, they themselves became defiled. And so that was the basis of their accusation. Now in verse ten, Jesus calls the multitude over, and said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. And guys, let me say this, you can't really appreciate the revolutionary nature of this statement, unless you are an Orthodox Jew living back then. You see, as an Orthodox Jew, you would have been absolutely shocked, floored by what Jesus just said. Because under Levitical law, certain things that entered the mouth did defile a person. In, in the law, God forbid the Jews to eat the meat of any animal which did not chew the cud and have cloven hoofs. They were not allowed to eat fish unless it had scales and fins. God had given them very detailed guidelines, very specific prohibitions with regard to certain foods, foods that were clean and those that were unclean. And every Jew knew that certain foods would render him unclean if they were eaten. So then why did Jesus say that in God's eyes, defilement doesn't come from what goes into the mouth, but by what comes out of their mouth? Well, it was because the old covenant under Moses was being replaced with a new covenant under Jesus, which was a covenant that focused on the inside of a person, the heart, and not on religious externals. But guys, this was really nothing new. This was not something that was hidden from the Old Testament saints. God was always more concerned with a person's heart condition than he was with their outward rituals and ceremonies of religion. Even when it came to something as sacred as the rite of circumcision, the Jews began to feel that because they went through the rite of circumcision, the men, that they were saved. That as long as they were circumcised, it didn't really matter how they lived because that's all God cared about was the outward rite of circumcision. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God says, therefore, circumcise the foreskins of your hearts, and be stiff-necked no longer. He repeated that in Jeremiah 4, verse 4, when he said, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire. And burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Translation, God is saying, look, if you think all I care about is the physical right of circumcision, and then it doesn't matter to me how you live, you better think again. In fact, God is saying, I only gave you the right of circumcision physically because it was an outward ritual that really represented an inward spiritual truth. You are my people. I called you out of the world. To be my own special people. To live for me. To no longer live like the world, but to live for me. To honor me. And I commanded the men to be circumcised because it signified the cutting away of something unclean. That you might live a holy life. But you know what? If you're not going to live the holy life, if you're not going to look at the ritual in terms of being a symbol of a greater reality, which is a holy life. If you're going to put all the emphasis on the outward ritual, you're missing the whole point. You're missing the point. It's like people do today with water baptism. There's a lot of people that believe water baptism saves them. And if they were water baptized, somehow that maybe that's all they really need. And I would beg to differ, but more importantly, so would the Lord. Because not word ritual is never. It does never save anyone, make them righteous in God's eyes. It's only a symbol of something spiritual. And without the reality, spiritual reality, the ritual means nothing. And so the idea that the Lord was more concerned about the inward condition of a person's heart in drawing near and worshiping him than he was the external rituals and ceremonies and and all of their religion was something he made very clear in the Old Testament. And the Jewish leaders should have known this. Remember what David said in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. He said, who may ascend? To the hill of the Lord. He's talking about ascend Mount Zion to the temple or the tabernacle at this time and have fellowship with God is the idea. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And he answers his own question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. And here clean hands have nothing to do with ceremonial cleanness. The psalmist is talking about clean hands in the sense of clean living. In other words, hands that don't steal, hands that don't hurt another, hands that don't touch what God has forbidden like another person's spouse, etc. You see, when the heart has been cleansed, it's going to work its way out into a holy life. That's what God is after. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, cleanse the inside of the cup, it will overflow and cleanse the outside also, right? Right? The point is not how to wash dishes. The point is he's using a simple illustration. You take a cup, it's dirty on the inside and on the outside. You start dumping water into it. It cleans all the dirt on the inside out, overflows and cleans the outside also. That's a picture of your heart. You focus on cleansing your hearts, and a clean heart will overflow and produce a holy life. Now, let's bypass verses 12 to 14 for just a minute and jump right to verse 15. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. Well, it didn't sound like a parable to me. It sounded like it was pretty straightforward. But again, Peter, thinking like a Jew, is thinking, well, I don't get this. Uh, you know, if we ate certain foods and they enter our mouths, they, they will defile us. So what, what is he talking about? Lord, is this a parable? Explain this to us. And Jesus said, are you also without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then is eventually eliminated from the body? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man." And do you see where sin starts here, guys? Where does it start? In the heart. And God looks at the heart, doesn't he? So before the sin ever gets worked out into a physical action, it starts in the heart, which gives birth to the action. And that's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at a if look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, in the eyes of God, you've already committed adultery. If you hate somebody else in your heart, in the eyes of God, you've already committed murder. Because God looks at the heart. And so the issue in this section is simply this. And we already touched on it. Is God more concerned with outward religious traditions, ceremonies, and rituals? Or is he more concerned with the condition of a person's heart? And if you're still not sure, remember what Jesus said again in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 8. He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the implication is they alone will see God. At this point... I think it would be a good idea to look at what the scriptures have to say about the heart and what the Bible means when it talks about the heart. Well, we know medically speaking, the heart is the organ in our chest cavity that pumps blood to the various parts of our body. But that's not what the Lord's talking about. Biblically speaking, the heart is the master control center of your soul, which is the inner man, and the seat of your will, which controls the way you live your life. That's why the Word of God admonishes us in Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. Be careful what enters your heart. And what enters your heart is going to come from what you're, who you're hanging with, what you're watching, what you're listening to. It affects, you know, those things enter the mind and come down into the heart. And whatever is controlling your heart is going to control your life. Now, there are two kinds of hearts in the world, okay? Very simply. Pure hearts and polluted hearts. Or in other words, redeemed hearts and fallen hearts. And since the Bible says that out of the human heart would flow the actions of a person's life, we can see that great good has come from those who have a redeemed or a pure heart. While at the same time, great evil has come from those whose hearts are unredeemed and polluted by sin. Let's first of all look at the polluted heart. Jesus touched on it here in verse 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. Let's just stop there. The evil in the hearts of people in our society, and we're seeing it every day as we turn the news on, it's getting really bad. But the evil in the hearts of people in our society has led to all kinds of problems. Things like adultery, idolatry, pornography, homosexuality, violence, domestic and otherwise, divorce, The corruption of government at every level and every other problem we face as a nation can be traced back to the evil in the heart of man. Now, they tell us the answer lies in better education. Maybe you've heard that. If we can better educate people about STDs, domestic violence, drug abuse, and so on, we can solve these problems. But let me say again what I've said before. You can educate people about their sin, but all that does is make them more educated sinners. I mean, educating people about these things really only deals with symptoms anyways. It leaves the the basic underlying problem undealt with, which is man's wicked heart. A heart that's polluted with evil thoughts and desires, and that's what it is. Now, psychologists and sociologists tell us that man's problem is his environment. Say, I mean, if we can somehow give people a better environment to live in, well, it will make them better people who will be less likely to, you know, live destructive lives towards themselves and others. Environment, that's another big one, right? But what these people fail to understand is that man originally sinned not in the ghetto, but in the garden. The garden of Eden, right? Paradise. The perfect environment. So, to put him in a better environment now isn't going to solve the problem, since he blew it in the perfect environment in the first place. See, the problem is not word, it's inward. That's the whole point. Man's problems are not outward, they are inward. The Lord, speaking to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, said the heart. And when he said the heart, he meant the fallen, depraved heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked above anything else. Jesus said that out of the evil attitudes in the heart proceed all kinds of evil and destructive actions. Guys, the only cure for man's problems is to somehow cleanse or purify his heart. Now, here's the problem with that. Man is helpless to cleanse his own heart. I mean, that's what we need. If our problems are inward, if the problems in society, and even in our own lives, marriage-wise and on the human relationship level, if all of that really, all the problems we face really are the cause of, The fallen heart, whether it be our heart or somebody else doing bad things to us. Man's fallen, evil heart is the root cause of all the problems that we face in society. The answer is we need to have a clean heart, a pure heart. But we can't purify our own hearts. I mean, the writer to the Proverbs said in Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? Who can say, I have purified myself for my sin? Well, nobody, of course. That's the idea. In Jeremiah 13, verse uh, 23, God said, can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin or the leopard its spots? Then if that's true, then you also can start doing good who are accustomed to doing evil. And the idea is God is saying, look, and I'll paraphrase, you can modify your behavior in some way. People do it all the time. They go on diets, they stop drinking, they stop smoking. You can modify your behavior depending on the consequences that face you if you don't modify your behavior. But you can do nothing to change your nature. Behavior and nature are two separate things. God says everything is going to bring forth after its kind. He said that agriculturally, right? But it was also spiritual. Fallen sinners can't bring forth the fruits of righteousness I'm not saying they can't do some good things I'm just saying they can't do anything that is truly righteous in God's eyes that will be accepted by him we cannot change what we are we are fallen sinners with depraved hearts that's who we are that happened a long time ago and everybody born since Adam has been born with a fallen nature a depraved heart a heart that is selfish a heart that wants to satisfy its desires uh, even at the expense of others We are powerless to change or to cleanse our own heart. And that is the problem with religion. Religion is man saying, but I think I can do it. I think I can do it. God says, no, you can't. Religion says, I can sure try. If I try hard enough, I can do it. But see, religion at its best only surface cleanses a person but leaves the heart untouched. And that was exactly the problem with the Pharisees. Remember what Jesus said to them? He said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. Around the Jewish feast days, they would whitewash the tombs because pilgrims coming from different parts of the world who had maybe never been to Jerusalem in their life, first time, they didn't know where the tombs were. If they inadvertently stumbled across a tomb on their way to Jerusalem, they touched that tomb, they would be rendered defiled, unclean. They couldn't keep the Passover. So, you know, as a courtesy to these pilgrims, around the feast days, they would whitewash all the tombs. You could see them from a long way off, right? Nice and clean and bright. Jesus said, you Pharisees are like that. You whitewash the exterior of your life. You look all holy and righteous, but God sees your heart, and inside your heart there is defilement, there is hypocrisy, there is all kinds of evil. See, that's a picture of religion, guys. Religion gives people the the illusion that I'm a good person, because Why? Well, I go to church, I light the candles, I pray the rosary, I work in the soup kitchen, I do this, I do that. You see, I'm a good person. But God never said you were a good person. God says you can do nothing in the way of good works to earn my favor. We know salvation is a free gift, right? But religion says, no, I have to earn it. Religion comes from a word that basically means obligation. If I fulfill my obligations to God, God will bless me with heaven, blessings on earth, whatever. But religion is not just worthless, it's dangerous. Because it will inoculate you to the real kind of righteousness. Somebody has said that religion is inoculative. It gives you a feeling of righteousness that is nothing more than self-righteousness. And it will inoculate, inoculate you from the real kind of righteousness that only comes from God by faith. So if we can't purify our own hearts, not even through religious works ceremonies rituals and so on and only those who have a pure heart are going to see God in other words live with him forever in heaven well the question is then how can we get a cleansed or purified heart I need it without it I can't see God I can't go to heaven I can't do it so how do I get a pure heart well let's look at that first of all what is a pure heart the Greek word for pure is katharos and in the Greek, it has two basic meanings. And both of these are important. It means clean, but also unmixed. Clean and unmixed. Our English word cathartic comes from that Greek word. Of course, the cathartic is used by a doctor for the cleansing of the physical system. Psychologists speak of catharsis on an emotional level where a person is cleansed from, you know, bitterness, anger, or all kinds of other destructive emotions. But the Bible talks about a spiritual catharsis, which is a cleansing of the inner man or the heart. You remember in Acts 15, you have to turn there. When God sent Peter to the house of Cornelius, Gentiles, to preach the gospel. And as Peter's preaching the gospel, suddenly the spirit of God falls on these folks. They all get saved. And I think they start speaking in tongues or something, but Peter knew they were not Christians. Well, when we got back to the leaders in Jerusalem, the church there, they were horrified that Peter went into the house of Gentiles. They're still thinking like Jewish people. You didn't go into the house of a Gentile if you're an Orthodox Jew. So they called Peter on the carpet. Imagine calling the first pope on the carpet. Where do these guys come from? I mean, come on. I'm being facetious. If Peter was the first pope, they would have never called him on the carpet. All right? But anyways... They said, Peter, what gives? What did you do? He said, Well, now wait a minute. The Holy Spirit told me to go with these guys to the house of Cornelius. I did. I went, started to, to share with the, the gospel with them as the Spirit directed. Their hearts were so open. Boom! They received every word. And at one point, the Spirit fell on them, confirming that they were saved. The same experience we had on the day of Pentecost. Who was I to argue with God? Oh, you? Well, yeah, okay. Who were? Yeah. Praise the Lord! I guess God has opened the door for the Gentiles to be saved. But in the course of defending himself, he said in Acts 15, verse 9, God had purified their hearts by faith. He was talking about salvation. He says salvation is really when God gives you a pure heart. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, John said, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that is, of course, talking about salvation. So a pure heart, first of all, means a heart cleansed of sin through the blood of Christ when you receive him as your Lord and Savior. But the Greek word for pure also involves being unmixed or undiluted. And we've used this illustration before, but, you know, gold is pure when all the dross has been removed. At that point, it is undiluted with dross, or in other words, it's pure. Wheat that has been separated from the chaff is pure wheat in the sense it's unmixed with chaff. And the idea is, what God is saying, the basic idea here is a heart that is completely devoted to God and not diluted with a love for the world. See, that's what the Bible calls having a divided heart. You can be a Christian and still have a divided heart. There's a lot of Christians like this. They have one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world. They can't decide what master they want to serve. And Jesus said, you can't serve two. You can't serve God and money, God and the world. You have to choose this day, as Joshua said, which God you're going to serve. The gods of the flesh, the gods of the world, or are you going to serve the true and living God? But there's a lot of Christians who are stuck between the world and the kingdom of God. They're like the children of Israel between Egypt and Canaan. They're in the wilderness they got too much of the Holy Spirit in them to be comfortable in the world anymore and too much of the world in them to really be comfortable around spirit-filled believers. So they're in a kind of a miserable place. And that's why the Lord said, I wish you were hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. See, when God cleanses a sinner and makes them his child, That person is made pure in heart in the sense that their sins are washed away and they now have received a new heart that has new godly desires and attitudes. But once they receive Christ and have a new heart, then they have to guard that heart all the time. Because if they're not careful, the world can begin to slip back in, begin to dilute their devotion to God. They will wind up with a divided heart. And God wants our hearts, after we have received Christ, he wants our hearts to be full- on for him. he wants to be our first and only true love. He wants us to not have a heart that's divided with anything in the world like Israel, how that they were wed to Jehovah but they went they went after other gods and God called them the adulterous wife of Jehovah He said, you know I devoted I committed myself to you and you said you were committing yourselves to me. What have I done that you've gone after strange gods? In fact, he raised up a prophet. Remember Hosea? His whole life was was an illustration of this. Go down to the marketplace, God said, and choose a harlot. Make her your wife. Bring her home. Give her your name. Make her an honorable woman. But wait. She's going to rebel against you at one point and go back to her harlotries. And God says, This is my people Israel. I took them out of this pagan culture where they were prostituting themselves to various deities. And I made them respectable. I gave them my name. I called them to be my wife, but they've split their devotions between me and the gods of this world. And God doesn't want that. He wants us to be full on. He wants us to be totally in love and committed to Him. Now you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, you know, my heart used to be pure for the Lord. I used to guard it against sin and all kinds of pollutions of the world. My heart used to be undivided for him. I don't know what's happened. I don't know where I am today. You know, I used to be so in love with the Lord, I would get up early and read my Bible. All throughout the day I'd be talking to the Lord. I couldn't wait to share him with people. couldn't wait to go to church and fellowship with God's people and hear the word taught and so on. I don't know where I am. I feel like I've drifted. I mean, is that possible, that I could drift so far from God? Yes, it's possible. It happens all the time. Why is that? Because, folks, our Christianity is designed to be very offensive. I don't mean offensive in the way you might think. I mean not defensive. We're supposed to be mar- marching forward with the Lord. And I guarantee you, if you're not going forward, you're sliding backward. Because none of us lives in a static place When it comes to our walk with God. Either we're moving forward or we are sliding backward. And that's why the armor of God is only for the front. There's nothing for the back. If you read Ephesians chapter 6, you'll notice that. Because God is saying you're not to be retreating. You're to be going forward. It's a walk which implies forward motion. Because if you're not moving forward, you're going to start sliding backward. It happens very subtly, almost imperceptibly. Well, you start cutting back a little bit on things. Maybe you stop getting up early to spend time with the Lord regularly in the Word. That leads to maybe, you know, not going to Bible study as much as you used to. And eventually you're not coming to church the way you used to come. And then you're getting back into some of the programs you used to stay away from. You listen to some of the music that God had given you victory from. It doesn't happen all in one day. It's a gradual thing. The devil is very patient. It's slowly, surely he is getting us to move away from God. This happened to David. Remember David, of course, when he sinned with Bathsheba? If you study that story, first of all, you may not realize this. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he was in his mid-50s. Maybe he's going through a midlife crisis. I don't know. You know what happens with some guys. I don't know. You know. (laughs) All of a sudden, you know, they're getting tattoos and riding motorcycles. I mean, you know, if you got a motorcycle or a tattoo, I'm not coming down here. I'm just saying, some guys, you know, it's like, you know, all of a sudden, what, what happened to you? You know, what am I looking at here? And, you know, and I don't know. David was going through a midlife crisis. I know one thing. He wasn't where he should have been with the Lord. Because it says that, you know, David spent many years in the trenches fighting the battles of God. And in the process, he gained a lot of wealth, conquering over peoples. Well, at one point he decides you know what I'm going to reward myself with a new palace so they had this beautiful new palace built and of course in Israel the rooftops were patios so now David's got a new palace he's enjoying the, the fruits of his labors you might say it says in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle eh, I'm going to send my general Joab I'm going to stay back let the young guys fight I've lived enough years in the trenches let the young guys fight the battles of the Lord I'm taking it easy now you know, there's a lot of Christians like that. They've come to a point in their life when they feel, and I've actually heard them say this, I've done my time. You've done your time. It's not like a prison sentence. I mean, I'm sure God's blessed when he hears you say it. I've done my time, God. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you. You've done your time. But it's kind of like, you know, let the younger folks serve God. Well, that's kind of how David was. And David decided, you know, I'm just kind of tired. I'm going to just, Hang out, you know, and just, well, as the old saying goes, idleness is the devil's workshop. And so one day, one evening, he was, you know, bored, took a walk on top of his palace, which is his patio. He looks down and sees on the rooftop of another house, a beautiful woman bathing. He lusted after her, sent some of his servants over. They took her. He lay with her. She got pregnant. You know, her name was Bathsheba. And we remember that whole sordid story, don't we? But it just tells us that when you're not where God wants you to be, when you're not always going forward, you're going to slide backwards. And If you're not serving the Lord, you're going to be serving the flesh somehow. Now, during this whole year before David was found out, he was out of fellowship with God. Now, David was a guy who really did love the Lord. For a guy who really loved the Lord... And got into this kind of sin. He was out of fellowship for a whole year. It was a miserable year. Read Psalm 32. He says, my bones are like the drought of summer. He said, you know, I was sick in my body. I was sick in my spirit. It was miserable. The Lord's hand was heavy on David. Hey, aren't you glad when God makes it rough on you when you're backslidden? It shows he loves you. People that can go off, call themselves Christians and go off, and live in sin and not have any guilt or remorse, I don't think those folks are really Christians. Because God loves us too much, even when we backslide. He's right there. His hand is heavy on us. David says, man, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was sick. Until Nathan finally came to David and confronted him about his sin. And David repented. And he eventually wrote Psalm 51. Now, I'm not going to read you the whole psalm. Let me pick out a couple of verses here and there. But he said in verses 1 and 2, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, David's already repented, but he wants to get back to where he once was with God, is the idea. Verse 10, he goes on. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice, David didn't say, God, I need to clean my heart. David repented and said, God, only you can cleanse my heart. See, we can't cleanse our heart, but we can sure repent and ask God to do the work, which is what he wants to do. And listen to me, folks, it's not too late to ask God to cleanse your heart and to draw you close to him again if you've drifted. Remember the promise we read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the idea is to restore us back to a full, vibrant, fruitful relationship with God. But beware of those, as we bring it to a close, beware of those who would try to mislead you down the path of religion and outward rituals as a way of getting right with God. Now I'm speaking to you folks this morning who, you're here maybe for the first time. You've grown up in maybe a denomination. Maybe you're a Catholic or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or something like that. And maybe you were taught, because I know I was as a Roman Catholic, that Basically, the path to God was through the rituals, the ceremonies, the feast days, etc., mass. All of that was the pathway to God. All of that was required by God to be right with him. Externals, religious duties, observances, and so on. For this, I want to have you look at verse 12. Because this is what the the trip of the Pharisees and scribes on the people. Then his disciples came to him and said, after Jesus said to the multitudes, It's not what enters the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, and so on. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying, Tough Torah. I mean, religious people are always going to be offended when you talk to them about grace. He said, you know, they said, you you really offended the Pharisees with that saying. But he answered and said to them, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. The phrase, let them alone, could be translated, keep away from them and have nothing to do with them. You hear what the Lord's saying? Stay away from those people that try to feed your religion. God does not want religion from you. He wants a relationship with you. And that only comes through Christ. Not through any religious observances. When he said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. He was borrowing something from Isaiah 61. This is really incredible. In Isaiah 61, you remember the first two verses. Those are the ones he quoted from when he launched his Galilean ministry. Remember he went to the synagogue of Nazareth on the Sabbath? Sabbath? And being a rabbi, they gave to him the scroll of Isaiah, because that was the reading for that week. And he unrolls it and finds Isaiah, what we call, wasn't the chapters weren't in there at that time, But we call Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me and sent me to preach the good news to the poor, to, to release the captives from their prisons, to, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and so on. In other words, the Spirit of God has anointed me to go out and give the gospel now. To those in bondage in this world those in bondage to satan but also those in bondage to religion because in matthew 11 he said come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden with religious laws and duties was the idea take my yoke upon you and learn of me my yoke is easy my burden is light in other words the way to heaven is not through your works it's through faith in me but in the context of then talking about how he had come this was a prophecy of Messiah coming in the context of him preaching, talking about him anointed to preach the gospel in Isaiah 61 verse 3 we read to console those who mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes there were always those people in Israel who loved God but because the scribes and Pharisees had made the way to God so impossible to attain to I mean Thousands and thousands of laws added on to what God had said that nobody could ever keep. And so they felt, tax collectors especially, harlots, they for us is no hope. We could never make it into heaven. And a lot of them wept over it. They mourned because they wanted to know God. They wanted to have a relationship with God. And Messiah said, or the Spirit prophesying of Messiah, said he's going to come to console those who mourn in Zion to give them beauty. In other words, salvation for their mourning and weeping. The oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's all with regard to salvation. That they may be called, listen, trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The idea is that when a person gets saved by faith in Christ, through God's grace, God plants them in a sense. They become a planting of God. Psalm 1 He plants them by the rivers of water. And their leaves will never wither. Their fruit never fails. Because they're connected to God who is the source of all life. And His life is flowing through them now. That's salvation, guys. Religion can never connect you to God that way. It can give you the illusion you're connected to God, but it can't really give you a vital living relationship with God. Only Christ can do that. He's the vine. We are the branches. And that's why Jesus said in verse 4, Verse 14, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Now, what are these ditches? Well, in the fields, they would often dig ditches to fill with water to use use as troughs so the sheep could drink from. There wasn't a stream or a river nearby. They had to give them water somehow. So they would often dig these long ditches, fill them with water. So that the livestock, sheep and all, could have something to drink from. Well, if you were blind, and and they were everywhere in Israel, by the way, these ditches. If you were blind walking through a field, chances are you're going to stumble and fall into one of these ditches. The spiritual meaning of ditch is hell. And he's indicting these Pharisees. Because they thought they saw so clearly. Oh, we see spiritually. Let us help you poor blind sinners to come to God. Because you know what? We'll be your guides. You're blind. We see. We'll lead you to God. Jesus said, You hypocrites. You're the biggest blind guides going. Jesus really nails these guys in Matthew 23 when he said in verses 15 and 16 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, one convert to Judaism. And when he is one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides. You think you're helping people find God? All you're doing is making it twice as hard for them to know the truth. You take a guy who has no faith, you feed him a false religion where he believes it now, now you've got to back him up one step to get him out of the false religion, back him up another step before you can bring him to God. You hurt him more than you help him when you give a false way to God, which religion does. Let me just say this. We're done. It doesn't matter how religious a person is. It doesn't matter how many times each week they attend church or how well they keep the rituals and ceremonies and holy days that their religion demands. You know, as an ex-Roman Catholic, I should remember this. For some reason, every year I forget it. And Wednesday, I'm watching the news and I see people with black dots on their foreheads. And I'm thinking, what, what, what's on their head? Oh, Wednesday. it's Ash Wednesday. Of course, what precedes Ash Wednesday? Fat Tuesday. Or Mardi Gras, right? The idea was you get all your sinning out on Tuesday so you can be all holy for God starting on Wednesday, Lent. And how we kick it off? We smear ashes on our foreheads. Palm ashes. Folks, let me tell you something. That is one of those empty, worthless rituals that people enter into thinking that somehow that does something in their relationship with God. All it does is deceive them into thinking they have entered into some spiritual thing when in fact it's nothing but religion. Empty, worthless ritual. You want to give something up for the Lord for Lent? That's up to you. It's not wrong to give something up for God. I was hearing people give up all kinds of things. I'm giving up chocolate. I'm giving up this or that. One person said, I'm giving up dark chocolate for Lent. Another person, said, do you like our truck? No, I hate it. But you know, but <laughs> well, you know, but that's the problem, isn't it? I'm going through these motions, and my heart is completely wrong. Yet I think because I'm entering to this religious stuff, somehow I got a relationship with God. Look, only the pure in heart will see God, and only the blood of Jesus can purify the heart. And again, that's why Jesus said, "Cleanse." the inside of the cup, speaking of your heart, and it will overflow and cleanse the outside. Also in other words, produce a holy life. And Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness no one is going to see the Lord. But holiness comes through Jesus. Because holiness comes from a pure heart. Only Jesus can purify our hearts. So it's all about Jesus Christ. And that's what this section is really all about. Now, is evangelicals We sit here and go, yeah, right on. I mean, we know this stuff. But do you know how many people in the world, even in our country, don't have a clue as to the fact that defilement does not happen externally. It happens internally. It's the heart. They need a clean heart, and only Jesus can do that. But what do they do? They go to church. They light candles. They pray the rosary. They help in the local soup kitchen. They do all these external things because in their minds, that's how I'm going to... I'm going to get in good with God. I just wish they would read the scriptures. I wish they would just read the scriptures. Because God's truth would set them free. And praise God, his truth has set us free. And now that you know him, guard your heart. Guard your heart every day. It's too important. Your heart will motivate the way you think and live. If you stay close to Jesus... Your heart will stay undiluted, undivided. It will stay pure. You will walk in close fellowship. You will bear the fruit of the Spirit. You will know the joy of serving Him in the Spirit. It's too easy to drift today, guys. The devil is really pulling out all the stops. Boy, is he dangling stuff in front of people. And if it's not material things or sexual things, it's discouragement, doubt, and so on. Draw close to Jesus and he will protect your hearts and minds and give you the strength to walk with him each day.